Thank you for joining me today. This is Layman's Medicine. It's me, and I'm back. So I want to apologize for not making any podcasts for anybody that was listening to them. I realized that I was getting into a COVID-only zone where that's all I was talking about because that's all I could think about and all I was surrounded with at work. That was never really the intention of this. COVID did prompt me to make this podcast, but my idea behind it was to give you information about more than just that. I wanted to give information about changes in medicine and also help explain things that are a little bit harder to understand. So going forward, I'm going to be including things that are just general information about medicine. I'm going to try to do this every Friday or Saturday and get it up on Saturday so that there's some updates. Now, I do want to enforce that I am not the only source that's giving out information on this. I'm not a licensed physician, so I can't give you any health advice. And I would like for you to confirm everything that I'm saying if you have any questions about it. So I do still have the old Twitter account active. If you have any questions, feel free to ask them there. I don't think Spotify has any way to answer questions on there, but the Twitter is a good location. So let's get into this week. So we're going to start this week off with something that isn't the coronavirus, and that is flu. Coming to the end of October, beginning of November, November is normally when we start seeing cases in a lot of places. There's already been some positives around the country that I've been told. So it is a good time for everybody to think about getting your flu vaccine. It does take about two weeks for the vaccine to reach its most effective state. So now is a good time to get it, especially with some of the shortages that we're seeing. A lot of places weren't really expecting for this pandemic to last this long. So they weren't expecting such a huge push for the flu vaccines. We don't have a coronavirus vaccine. So there's a lot of people that never got it in the past that have decided they wanted to get it. Part of this is due to how similar the symptoms are, and another part of it is that you can actually have both the coronavirus and the flu at the same time. So if you haven't got your vaccine, I do encourage you to go out and get one. Now is definitely a good time to get it. Most insurance companies do cover the vaccine, and even if you're paying out of pocket, it's generally not that expensive to get. It's a great way to protect yourself going forward. So there was one thing that I did want to discuss on the same end. NPR released a story saying that you might gain some protection from the coronavirus from the live nasal vaccine. They didn't really substantiate this. There wasn't a whole lot of information that they gave other than they said, oh, well, it helps your immune system. There may be some benefit. Now, there are some risks associated with getting the live nasal vaccine. Number one is that it's live vaccine. Number two is that it's not as easy to administer as people think. And it's only protective if administered correctly. Now, the live vaccine portion really isn't a huge issue for most people, unless you have a weakened immune system from an autoimmune disorder, HIV, AIDS, cancer, things like that. With live virus, it's actually a weakened live virus, so there's really little chance that it can actually infect you, but there is still a chance that you can have adverse effects from it. A lot of places don't give the nasal vaccine to even children. So there is some science behind why that's not the best vaccine for everybody. If you have a horrible nasal phobia, it is a good vaccine to get if you really cannot get the standard vaccine, but I wouldn't rush out and get it. There's not enough information behind it. Personally, I think the best option is just to get the, the standard vaccine, make sure that you're fully protected, that it was administered correctly. And then we'll see you going forward. I may be eating my words in a couple of months and say, hey, I was completely wrong. We all should have gotten the live vaccine. But for right now, it's best to set those aside and keep those for the people that truly can't get the standard ones. So because it's flu season and we're handing out flu vaccines, I know there's a lot of questions about the types of vaccines that are out there. Which one should I get? Which one shouldn't I get? 
Now, the best thing to do is to let the pharmacist or the doctor decide which vaccine is best for you. If you have any questions or if you're seeing a specialist that recommends something differently, then it would be good to communicate that to your physician. But generally, they're going to recommend the vaccine that is age appropriate or just basically appropriate for you. So there's really a couple different types of vaccines. There's the one that I previously mentioned that's the live nasal vaccine. There's the standard dose vaccine. There's a children's dose vaccine. Then we kind of run into this middle area where there is two separate vaccines. One's called flu block, one's called flu silvax. They're kind of the new age of flu vaccines that these companies have been pushing forward. One's manufactured by Sanofi, the other one by manufactured by a company called Securus. They're actually our major flu vaccine providers outside of GlaxoSmithKline. And these middle vaccines are intended for people that are a little bit more susceptible to the flu virus. So that's going to be the people that aren't 65, but have other health conditions or people that have had issues with the flu vaccine in the past. So the flu silvax is actually a cell-based vaccine. And in order to explain that better, I'm going to explain kind of another kind of uh, short version of how flu vaccines are made. So the flu vaccinations, they're actually grown on egg proteins, kind of in a big laboratory setting. Then they take those viral particles off of the eggs, smash them around, and basically kill them. And then they put those bits and pieces into the vaccine. That's pretty much the standard process for most vaccines that aren't live viruses. And it holds true for quite a few. Now, a lot of the companies are saying that it's hard to do a large-scale vaccination based on the egg-based vaccines because they're relying on egg supply. And there could also be a slight amount of mutation in the vaccine or in the virus that they grow for the vaccine because of the eggs. So the newer vaccines are actually grown on cells, Flusilvax being the first one. Flublock is actually DNA-based, which I am not qualified to explain in any way. I might come back a little bit later on and explain that when I've got more time and it's not just a side thought. And what that does is it creates a, hopefully, either for the flu block or the flu silvax, a closer strain to the circulating flu, which is really the big point of the vaccine. The next vaccination type for the flu is the high-dose vaccines. Some people call them the senior dose. Some people call them the old person's vaccine. I've heard millions of names for them. The real term for them is high dose, which is a little bit of a misnomer because they're not really only high dose. So they have more of the antigens that your body reacts to. But in the case of one of the manufacturers, Securus, it actually has a added chemical to it that creates a stronger immune response. So somewhere around 60 going up to as old as a person decides they want to get, there is a decrease in immune system activity. And that means that when you give somebody a vaccine, they don't create the same number of antibodies to the virus. They don't have a strong enough immune response. So with some vaccines, they add an additional chemical in, normally it's squalene, that creates a stronger immune response to the vaccine. And this actually increases the protection for people in these age groups. That's why we recommend that if you're at that age, it's best to get that vaccine. So have that discussion with your doctor. If you have any history of issues with the vaccine, make sure to tell them about it. It could just have been a bad year for you. It could have been something else going on entirely. But it is important, especially this year, to get your flu shot. So now it's time to go back to talking about what everybody's talking about. Coronavirus. I think I'm going to keep this really quick and short. I might go into more next week. To say that we're on the right track right now is not good. 
a lot of places. In fact, the United States, Europe are all experiencing huge jumps in cases. The thing that I'm expecting is going to happen this winter is that until people can understand that their actions have consequences, that they need to tell people when they're feeling sick, that they need to stay home, cut down on social events, we're going to see an increase in cases. This is pretty much what I've expected since the first spike that we had is that the winter time was going to be rough. The good news is, is that we have a better idea of what we're fighting against. We actually have treatments in place. Hospitals have better protocols. Businesses have better protocols. So I'm hoping that this winter, even if we have a large infection rate, we'll see that death tracker go up slower. So I would expect that this winter is going to be tough. I wish I could say something different. I wish I could say, no, we've got this. We're close to getting it, but we're really not. It's not that hard to prevent the spread of coronavirus. And unfortunately, people are tired of it. People are tired of wearing masks. People are tired of social distancing and not seeing their family. People want things to go back to normal. And we're not going to go back to normal, at least not for a while. And even then, things aren't going to be normal. So I think the most important thing that we can do at this point is just accept that things aren't normal. Things suck. But we need to do what we need to do to make sure that everybody stays safe. It's our individual purpose and our individual, I would say, directive right now to make sure that we're doing what we can to slow the spread, to make sure that we're not getting anybody sick, and making sure that we're being truthful with ourselves. Is this affecting me? Because I know there's a lot of people that are carrying a lot of weight around that they shouldn't be because of this. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit a little bit later in this episode. So if you think you have coronavirus, the best place to start for testing is your physician's office. Most doctor's offices aren't doing testing. There are some of them that are, but even if they aren't, they can still direct you towards local resources. Here where I'm at, we actually have community testing centers set up. There's Walgreens and CVS doing testing, and there's also a couple of small clinical laboratories that are doing testing as well. So if you call your primary care physician's office, call your county health department, they can actually direct you to where to go to get tested. Now, if you feel that you need to be tested, once you get tested, you need to assume that you have it until proven otherwise. Self-quarantine, make sure that you are keeping your contact with anybody else to a minimum. If you do come back with a positive test, make sure that you inform anybody that you've been in contact with recently. Let them know, hey, I came back positive. Keep an eye out for symptoms. Now for treatment for coronavirus, there's really not a whole lot that they're doing for people that are in minimal symptoms or mild symptoms. When you're getting over into the hospitals portion, they are doing a lot of treatment with steroid drugs to help suppress the inflammation, which is one of the most dangerous parts of the infection, and also keep the immune system in check. I mentioned it in previous podcasts, but there's actually some cases where the immune system is actually creating more issues because it's being stimulated by the virus. The other treatment that they do have out is Restevimir. <clears throat> it's actually one of the first treatments that they were talking about for this. We finally have some clinical information saying that this does help, but it's at a 4% reduction in mortality. So this is really one of those situations where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. 
And one of the big news stories is consistently revolving, besides the election, which is thankfully going to be over soon, is revolving around the vaccinations for coronavirus. Everybody's got this idea that once we can get a vaccine, things can go back to normal. And it's a little bit more complicated than that. So currently there are, as of today, which is Halloween, so happy Halloween, everybody, 11 vaccines that are in stage three trials. So when a vaccine goes into production, there's actually different steps that it has to go through before it can get FDA clearance for a vaccination. So there's pre-testing and then there's stage one to three trials. Stage three trials is pretty much an open, open public beta would be a good way to describe it. <coughs> Pardon me. So there are a lot of places that actually have this vaccine. In my town, there's actually a couple places that are hosting this vaccine and they're doing a trial. You just have to sign up for it. You get the injection, or in this case, most of them are actually two injections in series. And they monitored if you have any symptoms, reactions, and also your antibody response. So this is good. This is the final stage before they go into production. And there's actually some companies that have started production of the vaccine with an expectation of FDA clearance. There's been a couple cases where there's been reports of adverse reactions to the vaccines that have caused delays in some of the manufacturers. And this is pretty much normal. The only reason we're hearing about it now is because this is such a big news story. So with every vaccination, there is a risk of side effects. This goes with any you get, even your kid shots, flu shots. With flu vaccines, there's risks of a severe side effect to it with a condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome. But it's a really rare condition. You're much more likely to die of the flu than you are to get that. So this is all taken into consideration. Now with the coronavirus vaccine, it's going to be a little bit of a different story because there are going to be some countries and some places that are going to have this turn into a mandatory vaccination. I say that as a expectation and not saying that I know this is going to be coming, but with some of the countries and the way that they've been doing testing recently, it would not surprise me a bit if this became a mandatory vaccination for some populations. I am hesitant to say that it's a good idea for this to be a mandatory vaccination, but I'd say that that's a pretty good expectation. So with these vaccines, it's pretty much going to be a madhouse of who's able to get their vaccine through first. The first one to get approval is going to be the most popular one because they're going to be the ones that actually have stock ready to go, ready to get out to people. So they are actually signing up physicians offices around the United States in order to give these vaccinations. It's going to be very limited at first. They're probably going to give them to high risk populations before they start filtering down to the general population. When is this coming? It's hard to say. <clears throat> so the FDA was really quick to approve COVID tests. They're being a lot more hesitant with approving a COVID vaccine and for good course. They need to have a lot of data to back up their claims. This is going to be something that is directly affecting the people that it's given to in a completely different way than the testing. So while the testing, if it was inaccurate, was a detriment because this person's running around telling people that, hey, I got tested and I'm negative and also infecting people, but a vaccine can actually affect someone's long-term livelihood and their quality of life if there is an issue with it. So I do ask everybody to be patient with these. These companies know what they're doing. These aren't the first vaccines that they put out. And we really want to make sure that there's enough research and enough testing going into this to make sure that everybody is healthy. So one thing that's come to a forefront with this pandemic as well is mental health issues. So United States, and for that matter, 
pretty much everywhere around the world. We're seeing an increase in depression. There was an increase in suicide rates. And then we have to talk about the discussion of people having mental health problems after they have coronavirus. There was a gal on, I think it was Facebook a little while back that was talking about how long she had spent locked in her room. And she spent a month plus just locked in her bedroom because she didn't want her husband to get the vaccine or get the virus. And that's really tough on people. Even if you have mild symptoms, even if you recover fully, you may have issues with this going forward. There may be things that trigger that feeling of fear, that fearing, feeling of unknown going forward, and that's completely okay. Same thing goes for people that have lost family members because of this. There's a lot of people out there that have COVID to blame for why their friend, their husband, wife, grandfather, grandmother, father, mother aren't there anymore. And that's going to be something that's going to be hard to cope with because some people aren't processing their grief properly. So if you have any symptoms of a depression or post-traumatic stress disorder or basically anything that doesn't seem right, you're noticing that you're not happy, you're not enjoying the things that you used to, you're having suicidal thoughts, definitely reach out. Call the National Suicide Hotline, reach out to your primary care physician, go to the hospital. Mental health is just as important and just as much a natural process as anything else in the body. Depression is a disease. PTSD is a disease. The same way that high blood pressure or diabetes is a disease. So you need to have treatment for these things. I'm not going to say too much about the symptoms of these disorders. I can tell you what to look out for a little bit. But the main thing is, is that if something doesn't feel right, reach out. And especially during this time, don't be the only one doing this fight. Find a friend, family member, coworker that you trust. Have them keep you accountable. A lot of mental health facilities right now are on short staff. A lot of psychiatrists or counselors are only doing telehealth visits. You need someone that's going to keep you accountable for your visits and keep an eye on you. And that's going to be really important going through this right now because it will be really easy to say, hey, I am no different than everybody else and convince yourself that you're just experiencing some sadness and related to the pandemic. It's going to be easy to talk yourself out of it. A lot of people do this. So that's why it's going to have somebody else to help you with this, to make sure that you're keeping up with your appointments, to make sure that you're reporting any issues that you have, kind of keep an eye on you from the outside. So if you have somebody that you're able to lean on for this, it's good too. And it's not admitting that there's anything wrong with you. It's just asking for help in a situation where you need it. So with depression, the main thing that you'll notice is that something's not right even when everything is right. And that's going to be a hard thing to figure out right now because there is so much that is wrong with this world. And it's okay to feel sad, to feel distraught about it. But you do need to reach out. You do need to ask for help. And it is going to be pretty prevalent right now. There's a lot of people who have lost their jobs, lost their family members. And it's okay to be sad about these things. And it's okay to get treatment when needed. So speaking of getting treatment when needed, right now is actually a time when most Americans, and if you're overseas, I'm sorry that I'm going to bore you with this, 
you can actually just stop listening to this at this point because your healthcare is a lot better than ours. Start selecting their healthcare coverage for the upcoming year. So for most people, there's going to be two different options for your healthcare coverage. There's going to be a high deductible plan, sometimes called an HDHP plan, and some places will have a PPO plan. Now there are still HMO plans, which are kind of a subset of a PPO plan. I will go into those a little bit, but the two major plans that you're going to see are going to be a high deductible and a PPO or HMO. So a high deductible plan basically has you responsible for the contracted rate for all of your healthcare up until a point. And then after that point, they'll cover it either at 90% or 100%. So this is a good plan for somebody that doesn't see the doctor frequently. They don't have medications or at least not a lot of medications. It's generally going to be lower cost to both you and to your employer. So this is going to be a plan that they're going to market a little bit heavier. Some employers will actually even give a HSA plan, which I'll go into a little bit later, and basically give you money towards that in order to care for your healthcare needs. The other plan would be the PPO plan. The PPO plan is your generic copay, copay plan. So that's the one that most of us grew up with. That's one of the most popular plans for a long time. You pay a copay, you see the doctor, 90% of things are covered. You'll still be billed for some things and also blood work, but most things are just the copay. So depending on that plan, because you're doing copays for doctor's visits and for prescriptions, that one can be cheaper for somebody that sees specialists frequently, takes more medications, or is expecting something like a pregnancy, or if you have to have some type of surgery done that you know about ahead of time. Normally the out-of-pocket maximum is gonna be a little bit higher for those, but there's gonna be more covered services up to that out-of-pocket max. Now the HMO plan is pretty similar to a PPO plan, but that's gonna be a smaller network. HMO plans are gonna be basically, you can see these doctors, you'll pay this copay, and you can basically only have covered services. A lot of those HMO plans are gonna be the Medicare Advantage plans and also some plans within insurance companies. The HMO is kind of a managed care plan where the physician sees the patient and is actually given a kind of flat rate for it rather than what they bill out for the visits. HMO plans are kind of becoming less and less in the commercial marketplace and more and more in the Medicare marketplace because of those managed care plans. There are some additional benefits to these for people that are sicker because they do have some built-in extra care for those patient populations that have more issues. Now, I said I would mention what an HSA is. An HSA is a health savings account. It is basically a pre-tax account that you can use to pay for healthcare-related expenses like doctor's visits and prescriptions. There's also a flexible spending account that can be used for more things like over-the-counter medications. It can be used for medical-related expenses, and those will actually be outlined in your healthcare plan by what you can use each one for. There were some changes with the CARES Act that came out that allows health savings accounts to purchase over-the-counter medications without a prescription. And that's a good change for those, but I don't know how long that's going to stay around for. So mostly the HSA plan is just going to be for your prescription medication, your doctor's visits, and also for things like dental work and eyeglasses or contacts and of the sort. So hopefully this was a better format for an episode. 
kind of give a couple different topics throughout. I might bring in some breakdowns of changes in medications or new medications or explaining healthcare articles going forward, just to kind of break down some of the misconceptions, cut down on some of the fancy words that they use, and just explain things a little bit better. So once again, if you have any questions, definitely reach out to me on Twitter. Um, it's that's actually a good question. I don't even remember what the Twitter handle is for this. Uh, let me see. It is... Oh, Twitter. At Layman Medicine. Not layman's, layman. So if you have any questions, reach out to me there. I'll respond to them either directly through Twitter or on the next episode. So thank you. And hope everybody has a good week.